Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1981's Caveman, a slapstick comedy set in 1 zillion BC, October 9th to be exact, and it stars Ringo Starr in his last big notable acting role, at least when he's not playing himself or narrating a cartoon train. Ringo plays Atuk, a somewhat weedy caveman who finds himself at odds with his tribe's big brutish leader, Tonda, over the affections of the beautiful Lana. Once banished from his tribe, Atuk forms his own gang of caveman misfits, and together they encounter dinosaurs, discover fire, invent things like weapons and music and cooking, and all while spending the entire movie speaking a language of prehistoric nonsense, words and grunts. Uh, But perhaps most significantly for this film was Ringo's determination to get back. (laughs) Get back. Back as in in Barbara back. His wife. Get Barbara back. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is no insignificant thing, right? So this is the film in which Ringo met his wife of now 42 years, uh, Barbara Back. Yeah. For, for the rest of us, this is a silly slapstick film that we did or did not enjoy, and we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but for him, it's it's almost fun to think that this is a film that must hold a very special place in his heart. It must do, right? Yeah, I'm sure they, they must they must like get the Blu-ray out once a year. And have yeah. a screening on their anniversary. Yes, right? every year. Can you yeah. imagine they watch the film every year? <laughs> <laughs> As they whisper 
Ireland are you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's um, so. I do. I do think that the knowledge uh, that this is where they met it, it sort of colours your watching of it. Uh, but you get that a lot with uh, films in which the Beatles are actors, where you're you're very aware of the context around which they shot it and what was going on in their lives at the time. And so it kind of tends to. Uh, color your your thinking about the whole thing, but also as as much as him meeting Barbara back on this, like it, it it does seem to be quite an interesting film in terms of the historical context, in terms of like where Ringo is in his life at this point. So this film comes out in 1981, which is obviously after John is murdered, but it is shot in February and March of 1980. Uh, so obviously before uh, John is murdered, and it's also. Ringo flies out to shoot it uh, about three weeks or so after Paul gets out of jail in Tokyo after he's uh, locked up there for for uh, having uh, marijuana in his in his bag the dy- dynamite weed in his bag <laughs> and and as a result when Ringo is uh, trying to get into Mexico City where uh, Mexico is where some of the film is shot uh, he's strip searched at the airport uh, which seems it <laughs> seems to be a direct result of um, customs officials the world around thinking well Beatles carry drugs that's amazing yeah so. <laughs> specifically Beatles right there right. are four people in the world that are carrying drugs right now <laughs> yeah yeah so they're all on a watch list now there's there's pictures <laughs> of all of them like in, in like the back office of like every, every sort of every airport where the customs officials hang out it's like keep an eye out for these guys make imagine, sure you strip search imagine how disappointed you are as that customs officer strip searching Ringo like feeling absolutely positive you're going to find like a massive dose of drugs and then just finding a suitcase of <laughs> yeah i mean so listen we we can't we, we can neither confirm nor deny whether uh, ringo brought a suitcase full of baked beans with him to mexico <laughs> but i think um surely he had it written into his contract that his trailer had to be stocked to the gills with them stocked to the gills with beans <laughs> uh, you mentioned before by the way that uh obviously the film was Shots before John and his death, but released after. Yeah, we should mention that the October 9th date that appears at the start of the film. So it, um, it provides the context, and it's, it comes up on screen saying one zillion years BC, which is obviously a reference to one million years BC, uh, the the earlier film from the sixties starring Raquel Welsh. But then it comes up October 9th, which is actually a really nice, neat gag. I thought. Yeah, that that joke is actually. That joke is at the start of Life of Brian as well, isn't it, in fact? Oh, is it? Life of Brian is, what, 1984? No, Life of Brian is three or four years later. Mm. And at the start, it says, you know, pa- Palestine, uh, whatever it is, BC. And then it says uh, Thursday, right, around so lunchtime course. or something yeah, like yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, of course, that rings a bell. It's sort yeah, of, of like being very specific about the date when no one needs you to be. Yeah, yeah, um, which, is, which is brilliant. But I, I quite enjoyed that gag. But actually, also... Um, there is a specific reason why that date was chosen, which is it's John Lennon's birthday, and it yeah. was, I guess, a, a tribute to uh, to Lennon following his death. Yeah, in, in, in a sort of a neat, nice, neat way. That's you know, <laughs> yeah, not not too not too showy for a film that's essentially a, a slapstick comedy about cavemen. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's obviously it, it's a nice. I think it's a good way to do it. Actually, it's a nice little nod to him. Obviously, it would have been wholly inappropriate to get towards the end of the film. And it said the caption to come up saying, this film is dedicated to the memory of Sean Leonard. <laughs> I don't think they could. Have. I'm not sure. 
how well that would have gone down. Um, <laughs> but but actually, like you know, so we're talking about uh, this is obviously a daft slapstick film, but Ringo's taking his acting career quite seriously. Because is he? Because this is what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Because I I find it difficult as lots of things related to Beatles reconciling different things that we know about the Beatles happening at the same time. Mm. So I I think of Ringo having a, a solo music career that coincides with an acting career. I guess I kind of assumed that at some point he focuses more on acting than music. Yeah. And it, and this is the point where he's doing that now. I'm not, I mean, he's releasing records around this time. He is, Maybe okay. Maybe Ringo Fourth is his most recent release, but don't quote me on that. But at, at this time, he is definitely aware of the fact that that his sort of Beatles sheen, in terms of his sort of bankability or, or higher ability as an actor, is sort of has worn off a bit. Yeah, and, sure. And he's he's aware that you know. So he says around this time, no one is going to offer Ringo Starr a top role these days just because I used to be in the Beatles. I've got to be able to do the job. That's much more demanding, but much better too. I could end up with egg on my face, but succeed or fail, it's all down to me standing on my own two feet as an actor. So he is aware of the potential for his star to to wane a bit. Hmm. Um, taking on something like this, you know, the, the, the merits of the film itself, you know, are up for debate, but um, it's certainly a bit of a challenge for an actor because so as as you pointed out in the introduction um there's no actual or there's hardly any actual dialogue in this sort of mm. english dialogue it's all a sort of very basic caveman language so there are certain words that you come to understand what they mean but basically the actors here have to convey what they mean through gestures as well as the words they're saying the sort of nonsensical words they're saying so that's a bit of a challenge for an actor and and i think ringo does it Pretty well, in general. Like. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I do agree that I think that it's probably easy to overlook the challenge of physical comedy and yeah. conveying a character through physical means, like, only. Yeah. But in my mind, I can't help but think that this feels like less of an authentic performance from him than we saw in Tass Will Be The Day, which we discussed in the yeah, earlier yeah. episode, yeah. And, and even Magic Christian. Yeah. That he has, it feels like he has more to do in those films. Uh, and I appreciate what you're saying about how he has to convey emotion and sentiment and express actions without actually being able to use words. Yeah. I just don't know if I buy that that's a, a really challenging thing to do when when those actions and those emotions are quite simple yeah in the film yeah yeah I, and, and 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 I guess going back to what you were saying earlier uh, and and Ringo's quote about having to stand on his own two feet and succeed or fail etc um previously uh, you know as I mentioned at the start of this this was his last big acting role yeah really so failed <laughs> i don't know like as in i'm i'm asking i guess you know like yeah, yeah. Did, did, would we say you know if he was taking acting seriously at this point did that end up becoming in his mind an experiment that actually didn't he didn't succeed at well i mean the film didn't do very well it's fair, no. it's fair to say uh and, and it, it also is not a film uh, it's not one of those films that was sort of disliked at the time 
but has then been sort of critically reappraised. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, so it critically did not go down that well. And if it has been critically re- uh, reappraised since, then that reappraisal uh, <laughs> ended up in people saying, yeah, actually, it is as bad as we thought it was in the first place. <laughs> Um, until now <laughs> not until now because no. i'm very much on that side um but uh but but actually i do think that there is a little bit of a from what i understand from from sort of reading up on the film online i do think that there is a almost like a generational fondness for the film yeah of people particularly in the u.s that grew up at a certain time where this film would play on network quite often yeah and they see it as a childhood film that was seen that they would see as kids yeah uh which is interesting like it almost has a second life i don't think that would that that wouldn't have been how the film was built when it was first released but actually i can understand how it might have taken a little bit more of a, a a fondness for a certain demographic who see it as a nostalgic treat yeah yeah actually one of the interesting things about doing this podcast is that we have had conversations with listeners on uh, social media who will say it, we've sort of released episodes about films that we certainly didn't slag off, but didn't think were were particularly great and had comments from listeners saying, Oh, I've always really liked this film. Yeah. And, and often it is because it sort of came out at a certain time in their, I don't know, youth or also, but their sort of Beatles uh, education or their sort of burgeoning Beatles fandom, that kind of thing. And for that reason, it's sort of quite special to them. Uh, It happens a lot in general with, you know, there's lots of films that, you know, you can remember were just always on when you were a kid. And therefore, um, it doesn't mean you like them necessarily, but it does mean that they... Uh, they're quite sort of evocative to you of a certain yeah time. of course i completely understand that. that that idea of having you know having our own uh social media followers contact us and tell us that actually that film that we criticized they um they really loved feels like now would be a good time to really test that <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> funny um, you should say <laughs> now, I do, so i do think about Ringo's performance in the film. So it's like I say, I mean, this is a time in his life when I think he is, he's drinking too much. And I think he is aware of the fact that he's drinking too much. I don't think he's quite faced up to his alcoholism yet, or Mm. perhaps think of it as such. But he, so he's split up from Maureen. So I think he's not living with his children anymore. It's sort of rumoured he was in a brief relationship with Shelley Duvall around this time. And... Certainly at the time that he goes off to shoot this film, he seems to be in a sort of on-again, off-again relationship with a model called Nancy Andrews. And it's sort of on-again enough that it's a bit controversial that he gets together with Barbara. Mm. So he is in a bit of a state of flux. He's also um, just in 1979, nearly a year before, has had quite a serious life-threatening operation in Monte Carlo, I think it is where some of the old sort of intestinal problems that he has since he was a kid have sort yeah. of flared up again. And uh, I think the surgeons sort of describe it as being sort of t- touch and go for a while. I wasn't sure whether wow. it was going to pull through, you know. So maybe that's made him reevaluate a few things and th- and, and think about his career. But yeah, I mean, it's it, so it's around this time. And one adjective that gets applied to Ringo quite a lot, especially in the context of his the, his, the solo bits of his performance in Hard Day's Night is, is, is Chaplin-esque. Mm. People talk about him as being a sort of Chaplin-type figure. And, um, and you can see that in this, in, in that he is the leading man, but he's not an alpha male. He, he will sort of outwit 
bigger, more brutish opponents. Mm. And, and of course, I mean, this having no dialogue, you know, is is, is the uh, what better way to be Chaplin-esque is not yeah, to be able sure. to speak. In, it, well, he can speak, but, you know, can't speak English, so he can't convey things through dialogue. And so the, the director, uh, Carl Gottlieb, says, because this is a film he'd been preparing or try, trying to develop since about 1977, apparently. So it's taken a while. And I'm not sure whether he has gone through potential casting choices for the leading man. But he said, like, after he cast Ringo, he said, when you need a small, suave, funny, awkward, unprepossessing leading man, there aren't a lot to choose from. Dustin Hoffman, Dudley Moore, Robin Williams, and who else is there who's also a star? There's Ringo. Wow. So, I mean, that is... That's pretty exalted company that he's putting. But exalted in there. company, but also quite eclectic company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, the, the Dustin Hoffman thing I see less, but I, I can I, completely see what he means with Dudley Moore. Dudley and Robin Moore, Williams. absolutely. Yeah, Robin Williams, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Dustin Hoffman feels like the outlier there. I don't feel like Dudley. Uh, I don't think of Dustin Hoffman and Dudley Moore as interchangeable. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, fair enough. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that um, is that a quote that he said at the time? Yeah, it looks from, like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I can see that, uh, and it's interesting that we said before. I think probably when we were talking about Magic Christian as well that this kind of feels like it's within Ringo's comfort zone to be playing this kind of character. Yeah, almost a little bit of a uh, put upon, put upon, almost like a sad sack figure with puppy dog eyes, but with comic sensibilities. You mentioned earlier that um, obviously Ringo was going through a quite a big period of change. I don't know much about Ringo's life at this time, but is it fair to say then that him meeting Barbara back straightened him out uh, a bit? Like, is you know that seemed to for the fact that that relationship ended up resulting in this currently forty-two year marriage feels like it might have been a sort of a source of stability for him at that time. Yes, uh, but eventually, so I think. Right. I think the two of them, I mean, so they got together very quickly. They were married within a year mm. and they both went through alcohol and maybe drug rehab together, but like sort of more towards the end of the 80s, I think. Right. So if you think about that that, uh, that appearance on the Michael Aspel show where it's him and George yeah, being interviewed at the same time, yeah. which is great. I and mean, I think that's maybe 87-ish or something like that, I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, he's still like... Uh, an alcoholic then right he's still yeah <laughs> yeah but but i don't well, it's weird to, to talk about it in those terms because he doesn't come on that show visibly drunk uh, but well uh, not in the same way that sort of oliver reed used exactly, to go on that's what i mean shows. right but but, but he's but clearly you, he's under the influence you can see that he's yes. a bit like you know cocky and yeah got that sort of swagger for sure yeah yeah well that i feel was part of our um strength well, we were a band that were appealing to children, to grandparents, you know, like the Stones, where they were mainly on a teenage attitude. Mm. You were... How you doing, Mick? You were always the, uh, the down-to-earth one. That's right. <laughs> what did you... Uh... God, you're looking chubby. Thank you. <laughs> what no, did you... No, no. Oh, sorry, I've got what to be you... George's on. <laughs> so I think the Barbara Walters interview, uh, where he's talking about John's murder... I couldn't tell you exactly when that was, but I'm going to say early 80s, I suppose, uh, where he's sort of crying about it. And he's sort of, 
Uh, I, I'm not saying he, he was definitely drunk during that interview, but that was certainly around a time he was drinking yeah. and not in a good place in general. I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's certainly true that that relationship has been a stabling influence for him, and what a lovely thing, you know, they're still together now, and it's you know, and it's lovely to see, you know, they spend spend a lot of their time sort of tweeting pictures of themselves doing doing yeah. peace signs, you know, yeah. in, in their in their garden and stuff, and going to the Chelsea Flower Show every year, and it's great. But yeah, I think it took a while, and so they both had their own problems with alcohol, and then they both cleaned up together. Yeah, that's nice. And the catalyst for all of that is obviously the exceptional movie Caveman. Quite right. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that you think that Ringo is given a good performance in the film. Yep. What do you think of the film generally as a whole? Um. I liked it more than I was expecting to. It, it is obviously very, very flawed. No one's going to call it a masterpiece. I think we, we had a conversation on a previous episode where I was making the point that if, if a film it delivers what it is attempting to and therefore it is kind of succeeding on its own terms, mm. I don't think there's any point in having that argument again because, you know, as you rightly pointed out, you can... Uh, you can say that about any art. Basically. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess the counterpoint to that is the film sets its own bar very low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then achieves it. Then yeah. great, good, good for it. You know. Um, so I think it's a comedy. It's mainly a visual comedy, and I did laugh out loud three or four times, which is, to be honest, quite a lot for watching it's any more comedy. More than film. you do in most my company most <laughs> times. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's years since you made me laugh. But but um, the uh, but I I think. Bits in it that I found really charming, particularly the stop motion animation dinosaurs, which yeah. sort of reminded me of this because they were sort of, uh, they had to sort of convey threat while also being cartoonish and slightly cuddly. And they did both of those things at the same time. So that when they are sort of vanquished as a threat by being stabbed with a big pole or getting fed a berry so that they fall asleep and fall off a cliff, you, you did feel like a genuine threat had been extinguished as opposed to oh here's a big cartoon dinosaur it's not going to do him any harm yeah Uh, and you know and obviously there is a limit to that i get that it's not sort of jurassic park you know you know with the sort of uh with the uh, with the t-rex scene or anything like that you know it's it's a completely different thing Uh, i really like the design of the dinosaurs Mm. they weren't they were threats in terms of the story but they didn't look threatening in a film that is essentially a comedy they were they had this sort of all of them had this sort of cute pudgy quality to them that was it's quite you know yeah. uh quite fun and and nice to look at the uh the guy that uh did the, that stop motion uh animation is the same guy that had did done the same thing in one million years bc yeah um so he was obviously hired to to do the sort of same uh same effect here i think the issue i had with the dinosaur scenes was that if you if you look at the film as a whole uh, from a plot perspective, it really is just kind of the cavemen doing a thing, and then they run into a dinosaur. Yes, <laughs> and then and then they vanquish the dinosaur, and then they do a thing. Yeah, and then they run into a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it does happen six or seven times. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. in the film, I, I kind of felt like, yeah, I, I guess if you were being a little bit smarter now when writing that film, what you would do is uh, you'd have those cavemen defeat those dinosaurs in a way that they learned something from that then contributed to them 
in their final overthrowing of Tonda, the uh, the sort of bully leader yeah. guy. But it doesn't seem to happen. I don't think that I don't think those scenes add anything to Atuk's uh, Ringo Starr, who's starring as Atuk uh, Atuk's overall growth. It's no. literally just a series of skits with with different stop animated dinosaurs. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, you, you mentioned Ringo's. Uh, or Atuk's uh, growth as a character yeah. and actually I think that is achieved quite well so the, obviously this is a, a very broad strokes story the, the story to you know get, give a very uh, general overview is uh, Ringo uh, uh, or Atuk played by Ringo is sort of in the tribe of what's he called Tonda the, Tonda is the leader yeah, yeah the Tonda. Um, and so Tonda's girlfriend is Lana who's played by Barbara Bach and Ringo is the sort of be- the sort of beta figure, and he gets thrown out of the. He gets cast out of the tribe. He has to go out on his own. He comes across. Is he called La? Played by Dennis Quaid. Yes. It's an early role for Dennis Quaid, and who is his friend? And they and they meet Tuller, who is played by Shelley Long. This is the first real thing that Shelley Long has done in her career. Certainly, the first big role she gets. Uh, she starts on. Cheers, playing Diane in Cheers about a year later. So Tala kind of falls for Ringo. She's a sort of girl next door figure, but Ringo really wants to sort of get back to Lana because that's the girl he's fallen for. And like, but his interest in Lana is sort of pretty purely sexual. So I mean, if if you if you pause here and think about what stories are generally doing here, you think about romantic comedies. What they're doing here, they're doing it with dialogue rather than sort of the sort of action and gesture that is being done here. But this setup happens a lot mm. where the male lusts after a sort of impossible female figure who who is not, re- we know not to be really suited for them because actually they're not a, a, an alpha male and they, they want to think of themselves as an alpha male and lusting after this woman is, is part of it. There is a, a girl next door figure who is often the sort of female friend yeah. who we know them to be more suited for by the way the same thing happens in yesterday right which we've done an episode yeah of course yeah yeah good point yeah i was thinking i was just thinking this is i think this in terms of like american high school tropes right you know you fall for the popular girl at school who's probably a bit of a mean girl um and then your your female best friend yeah uh, is actually the one who's better suited for you yeah yeah exactly but yeah so this um this setup is quite familiar you know um and uh, and so uh, so what what happens is um after uh, ringo has sort of vanquished tunda in the end in the sort of final fight it looks like he's going off with lana and uh, then there's a twist where he actually drops lana into what has been previously established uh, is dinosaur dung and uh, goes off with tala instead so I, it, it's so long ago I started on that plot synopsis, I forget why. But <laughs> well, the reason you were saying that is because of the character growth of Atuk. Right, yeah, exactly. Which, which I do agree with. I think, you know, and I think, I feel like me and you probably differ slightly on our opinion of this film, but the one thing I do agree with is I was actually surprised by their, their by there being significant character growth in this character for a film of this kind. Yeah. You don't expect that. Yeah, yeah. But but I think, like, the what I'm trying to get across is that I, I, I get what you're saying that, that the sort of physical acting of it is, is not necessarily a massive challenge, but it, it, but it does that, but everyone in it has to be on their game and has to understand what their character, the kind of person their character is and what their character does, 
how their character would act in given situations because all you can do is convey it through action and, and gesture. So everyone in it, I mean, Shelley Long is brilliant in it, to be honest. Like, yeah, I agree with that like, too. And, that, and you can completely see how it, it's easy to say these things with hindsight because she's we know she's Shelley Long. But yeah. I can imagine that if you saw that in 1981 and you'd never seen Shelley Long before, you would think like, oh, she's she's quite special. Like, Yeah, and, and also there's something quite approachable about her yeah. as a character. And yeah. I think you're right. I think we, we look at her and think of Diane, mm-hmm. but I think audiences at that time would have looked at her and, and thought she seems like someone you want to spend time with so automatically she's someone that you you root for uh in that situation whereas barbara back is beautiful but yeah. there isn't actually anything else other to her character other than that uh yes yeah you know, that's true whereas shelly long's character and there there is that scene where shelly long helps and, and sorry i should say tala helps atuk defeat tonda and then she feels like they're going to kiss or get together, uh, but Atuk goes off with Lana, Barbara back. Yeah. And then there is a quite of a pause on Shelley Long's face as she sort of expresses being upset about that. Yeah. And it's done in a sort of comical girl next door kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is very expressive, and yeah. you get more from her in that moment than most actresses would give. Yeah. I think in that yeah. scene. Yeah, because actually. actually, like you, th- you think about what she does is Diane in Cheers. And there's a lot of physicality in that performance as well, Mm. because like everyone around her in Cheers is very, very loose and relaxed. Yeah. You know, everyone else is completely comfortable with their surroundings because they spend every night in this bar. Yeah. And she is, is out of place there and she is a bit stiff and a bit proper. And she kind of, you know, initially at least thinks she's better than the place. And she has to, she conveys that physically as much as she does through dialogue. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the actors are doing an impressive job by conveying their character at all time without the need of dialogue. Yeah. I do agree with you on she- with Shelley Long because I think she is giving more than is required of her in those scenes. Yeah. I do think that the... I, th- I think you're being generous to the other actors in the film. <laughs> and I, I said that because I think the, the tropes that you mentioned there about, you know, like a, a every every man, kid trying to you know dealing with a bully being in love with the popular girl at school mm-hmm. those kind of things i think the film relies on those tropes to get those uh characters across yeah. as much as the character uh, as much as the actors themselves so i, I feel like the, the 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 film leans into that formula a lot and yeah. that's more the reason why it works rather than the actors going above and beyond their acting prowess to sell it yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of both, maybe. But, I mean, I think... Uh, so no, some... no, no. No, it's just the one that I said. <laughs> ah, right, okay. Sorry, I see that now. Um, no, but I, but I think telling a very simple story is the point of something like this. It would be to do the whole thing without dialogue and tell like quite a, quite a nuanced story would sort of... I mean, A, be incredibly difficult and probably not very satisfying either mm. because the, the point is is that the audience is going to be... Part of the audience satisfaction is that I understand what's going on here. So apparently um, when, in cinemas when it was released, in certain cinemas, like on on the seats, people were given a, a pamphlet yes, sort of translating the, language, the, the caveman yeah. dialogue, which is sort of like cute and like a good bit of marketing. But sort of the point of it is that you don't need to understand it. Yeah. You, know? you, you are... So, I mean... When I said about Lana being dropped into what what has been established is dinosaur dung, 
uh, earlier on. What I meant by that was that there is a scene earlier on where the, where a group of them figure out figure it out, and they use the word caca in the end to describe it. Yeah, that scene, by the way, I didn't find funny. Like it's a bit scatological for my taste. I didn't think it was all that great. But what what it is doing is establishing for you that this isn't just mud that he flo- throws her into later on. You now mm. know it, and it's that idea has been communicated to you. Yeah, and, and I guess my point is, how did they communicate that? Through the, I think they sort of, they, they walk into the place where the dung is and they're kind of sniffing the air and things like that. And uh, yeah, maybe that's about, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I, I, I and I guess, I, I know what you're saying, like that, that is communicated to you, but I, I don't think the film is, I felt like the film wasn't doing anything particularly trying in order to convey that you know i i I know what you're saying like they've they've successfully established context for this ending Mm. without having someone explain there's some dinosaur dung yeah but i feel like that's actually quite a simple thing to do in the visual medium of cinema Uh, (laughs) you know you basically have people and and i generally can't remember what that what that was but people walking into a room and sniffing a bit yeah Um, Yeah, that does the job right that's 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 not you know maybe it's a i mean when you say it like that (laughs) it's it's much more nuanced than i um and also i guess there's 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 definitely a a question there around you know it's a simple story and for a film like this that isn't using dialogue then obviously a simple story is what you want from this, right? It, yeah. you know, because trying to tell a complex story that way is going to be unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah. Um, the question I would sort of come back to you at is, then maybe don't tell them, maybe don't do that and maybe tell a, a more interesting story, a less simple story and have some compromise in the in the language. There, there, it's interesting, I found, that halfway through the film, Atuk meets another caveman who can speak English and is trying to teach him the English words for some of these things. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Much in the same way, I, I actually liked the gag where they just sort of crack each other's backs and they can suddenly stand up straight. Yeah. I thought that was quite fun. I actually wondered if this is going to be a step in their evolution. They were actually going to start using some proper English words now, but actually that was a, it was a gag. Yeah, it was a single uh, that they, gag. Yeah, that they, they, they didn't do. Yeah. Um, but but it, I mean, it, it's consistent with jokes that are being cracked throughout the whole thing is that there are hints that uh, this society is just on the cusp of yeah. disca- and so they do discover things like fire for the first yes. time music there's yeah music yeah there's a scene uh, just at the start where ringo is kind of sitting around idly and he's got like what he's got like a stick which he's got a sort of it's not quite a, a wheel but he's kind of spinning it around and looking at it and then just mm. kind of throws it away so the idea is like oh he's just he's on the cusp of inventing the wheel and maybe yeah, yeah, he'll yeah. do that in the next few days but he's not done it yet so that, that language thing is is consistent with those jokes that's what we can do yes I, and, and I, I liked those jokes in general I, I liked the idea that all this stuff is just about to happen uh, mm. but it's not quite happening yet yeah um, I get that I, I think that I think one of the effects of that for me was i generally found that spending the entire film with them speaking the caveman language they do i found that a little bit irritating yeah and i'll lay my cards on the table here i watched this film uh for free on youtube and it was one of those channels where 
uh, it interrupts the film quite a lot with adverts. Yeah, me too. Uh, which yeah. is a it's a bad way of watching the film. I understand that, but also you know, if there are any kids listening to this, it's how we used to watch films back in the day. So <laughs> I felt like it was okay. Yeah. My cinema, my, my film watching experience of this film was watching it on YouTube. That would cut with with YouTube ad breaks. It is the only time I can ever remember that when an advert break interrupted the film, it was welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I found the, the constant caveman grunts for the, the entirety of the film, I found that quite irritating over time. Yeah. So I think, uh, so, I mean, I, I found it a little irritating at times too, but I, I, I think that you kind of have to be absolutist about this sort of thing. It would be so much worse if like they sort of spoke half in caveman grunts, but also at other times spoke in English. Yeah. In order to convey some more complex ideas. I think like we'd feel a bit cheated by that. Yeah, no, I think that's fair but, actually. Uh, part, I do I, the, I see what you're saying. Part of the appeal, if you want to say appeal, you probably don't, I think, but like <laughs> but, but part of the appeal, if you like, is that this it, it's a it's a silent comedy effectively that's kind yeah. of what's being yeah, yeah. and, and I, I appreciate that i think that the, the concept of the film i think is perhaps a little bit flawed and i think that um it's interesting i was reading roger ebert wrote a uh, review of the film when it came out um and he said that the in his review of the film that the uh biggest flaw uh or he deemed that the biggest flaw of the film was that it's it's a parody or satirizing something but it's not actually satirizing any particular kind of material yeah the idea itself is what is funny and um looking at a lot of the the people who worked on the film both in front of and behind the camera there's a lot of people who have ties to mel brooks and what he was doing at that time yeah which makes sense to me because there's a lot of uh, similarities in the the tone of the film but i kind of agree that the it feels to me like a it's, it's almost like a what you'd have as a, as a repeat sketch in a sketch show yeah, yeah. as opposed to drawing out a 90-minute film from, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like there is... I, I can understand how somebody would approach a uh, a movie and feel like this this would be good uh, and a good story to tell, but actually, on the whole, it feels a bit drawn out and I think that nobody really thought of the fact that watching this kind of thing for 90 minutes might actually end up being quite irritating or annoying or frustrating for a lot of audience members yeah fair enough and listen i mean like most audience members were were on your side with this you know i think they very much voted with their feet (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah fair enough i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
We should probably touch on, um, and already regretting that turn of phrase, uh, how the film presents, and I want to use the phrase gender politics, <laughs> but what I really mean is boobs. Yes. There's a lot of boobs in, in the film. The, the film is a bit boob obsessed. It makes me realise, actually, that when we talk about um, like carry-on movies, we think of that as being a very sort of UK-specific type of comedy, but... Yeah. Uh, around the same time the US was I think going through a similar kind of comedy genre where this sort of the same sort of sense of boardiness was coming through a, a lot there I think you know we, we've seen it in some of the other films that we discussed but in this film in particular there is a mad obsession with boobies yes does seem to be yeah and uh, so I mean uh, so obviously, you know, as I say, the the actors have to express a lot through gestures. So you can imagine the sort of gestures that Ringo is making. Yes. In in this context, uh, throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's there's those gestures. Um, there there is the scene where I think his name is Grog, the blind man. Yep. Uh, is confused because he is uh, feeling a boob, one boob each of two women. Yep. But is confused because. He thinks it's one woman. Yep. And it's quite a long scene of him <laughs> establishing. It's longer than it needs to be. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. And then until he then establishes, actually, no, it's two women and continues touching their boobs. Like yeah. this is, you know, this is to say uh, one of many, I think, scenes <laughs> where, yeah, boobs are the focus. Yeah, and so uh, so th- this is not the first time that a Ringo Starr film is- has been one that we've called its gender politics into question. No, uh, incidentally, the uh, one of the last times we did talk about this was For Magic Christian, and the scene in question for that film was when he was with Raquel Welsh, who was the slave driver of... Oh, the galley slaves on yeah, the ship. Yeah, all of yeah, the yeah. naked women um, yeah. rowing the ship, which in hindsight wasn't actually going anywhere anyway yes uh and obviously you know Raquel Walsh being the star of one million years BC that this film is based on yeah yeah but yeah so I suppose like you know the the sex comedy is kind of a big thing at this time mm. and so certainly that is you know speaking of Dudley Moore like yes that's what he's doing a lot of yes around this time I suppose Dustin Hoffman there regretting his life choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but but I suppose also you know when you think of those sort of like beta male uh, leading men Woody Allen is one as well mm. um, you know sort of putting himself in his films playing those roles where you know he he is sort of getting the girl but in a way that is sort of ridden with his own his own neuroses and anxiety and sort of to the fore yeah and that's it's similar to what's going on here so you get from Ringo's performance that he is you know he's not the tough guy but he sort of wins the girl in the end or wins the battle in the end through ingenuity rather mm. than brute force. Although actually, uh, in, in his final battle with uh, Tonda, uh, there was a bit too much brute force on Ringo's part. Right? Uh, to be honest, where I kind of thought, like, oh, you, you've just hit him with a with a bone or something like that. Yes, you know? yeah. But there, but there are bits where he, he sort of discovered, he's invented the slingshot and invented yeah. the axe, basically, in order, to, in order to do these things. So it is ingenuity. But then it was one of those slightly unsatisfying fight scenes where actually it does rely on Ringo, who is nowhere near as hard as this guy, just hitting him. Just hitting him harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, you're completely a, a right. A bit yeah. too much. A bit too yeah. much. I think you're right about that. I think the there is definitely a turning point at this age of cinema where there is a focus more on sort of the the underdog 
becoming sort of you know get, getting their victory. Yeah. But going back to boobs. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was that is an important point. It's a good point to make. But specifically about boobs. Yes. Is is I, I know we always say this that phrase that's I feel like is haunting us in this podcast now, which is it was you know of its time. Yes, one zillion BC. Yeah. One zillion BC specifically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do wonder about the scene in particular where Ringo is getting intimate with uh, Barbara back while she's sleeping. Yes, attempting to. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, attempting to and, and being foiled in the process, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. obviously played for comedy value. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a little bit, you wouldn't fly now. Oh, no, absolutely not. And quite rightly. So, yeah, so th- of course what, what's happening here uh, is he's drugs her and he's drugs uh, Tonda so that they're asleep. Yeah, and the idea is he's sort of trying to well, it's kidnapping her basically, isn't it? Mm. Um, uh, but he is also trying to have sex with her while she's asleep, which yes. includes him sort of like jumping on top of what he believes is her, and then sort of like doing pelvic thrusts before realizing it's actually a rock, yes, rather than her. So like, yeah, th- this is uh, it's an attempted rape essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then you know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know where we go with that conversation, well, honestly. Well, no, not it's, really. But, but but also, it reminds me that um, uh, that if you think about that'll be the day. That'll be the day has like quite a nasty rape in it. Yeah. Uh, um, by David Essex, not by David Essex. I'm sure. I'm sure David Essex has never raped anyone. But uh, by the character that David Essex plays, um, and Ringo as his friend. Uh, is the sort of voice of reason, and Ringo yes. calls him out on it. Or yeah. Mike, the character who Ringo plays, That's right. calls him out on it. So I think in that film, certainly, you know, we discussed the fact that he is—he's a bit of a womanizer in that film, and he's—and uh, he's—and he's—he's very, very flawed as a character. Uh, but also, he fundamentally knows right from wrong. Yeah, and I think you can always root for Ringo. Or, or you, you always feel like you're going to be on his side because you fundamentally got that. Yes, and, and yeah, and I think that's a really good point because I think that's uh, because it's Ringo. You mean yeah. so it's yeah. not just the way the character's written, but yeah. Ringo is well cast in that role because he's all automatically going to have audience sympathies on his side. Yeah, absolutely. Because your public, your perception of him, yeah. because the person you know him to be, and you know the fact that you like the Beatles and you like Ringo, elides with the character. You yeah. Know? So I suppose you know it, it happened again in in Blind Man, where um, so yeah. the first thing you see him do is is hit and rape a woman. It, it, so there, obviously, you know, it, we talked a bit about you know Blind Man, the idea that he was obviously trying to stretch himself as an actor a bit. Yes, and him getting this part in Caveman, which by the way is a, is is the lead role. This is the first Ringo film we've talked about where he's playing the lead. Yeah, that's true. So that's quite unusual for him, mm. it seems, at this point. Um, so I think he's he's sort of enjoying the challenge of this role, the physical challenge of this role. But I think probably it's sexual politics he's not thinking about too much. No. And, and also, by the way, there is a cartoonish quality to it. As, as we said, yeah. it's got stop motion dinosaurs. So, And obviously the way in which he is acting, what is essentially an attempted kidnap and rape, is, is cartoonish and yeah. slapsticky. You know. And I do agree. I mean, it does now put new context on all the people in the US that watched this as kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was a little bit unsavory now. But yeah, um, also brings to mind, you just mentioned now three films in that we've covered in the Ringo Starr acting uh, oeuvre 
yeah. that, that feature rape scenes. So that's an interesting. It does seem to crop up a lot. It does, it? yeah. Interesting career choice. Um, but, but let's not dwell on it. Too much. I mean, I I know that um, you're you're right. It's played out in a comedy way. Ultimately, the the film is uh, you could argue the film is by foiling his attempts in that scene is is sort of on the right side of those sort of sexual politics because karmically Ringo isn't guessing what is you know a took isn't guessing what he's trying to achieve in that uh, in that moment yeah and and this is the took we meet at the start of yes. the film who is kind of sex obsessed and as we've discussed lusting after the wrong woman yes. and, and yeah, doing yeah. doing so for the wrong reasons you know so one of the points of this trope is that the character ultimately learns that the value of true relationships and and that it's it, and that it isn't just sort of empty and sexual that yes. there's substance to them as well yeah 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 uh we've mentioned tonda quite a lot of times now yeah uh, tonda being the the big brutish bullyish leader yeah do you know what else he has been in uh no he, the guy's an actor yeah so i forget the guy's name but he, he's an american football player he's, a, think, he's right? an american footballer his name is john matuzak okay uh he is i was so excited to learn this <laughs> uh he's sloth in the goonies is he yeah wow i know right oh, okay isn't right. that cool right. yeah oh, completely unrecognizable obviously because of uh i'm assuming lots of makeup yeah yeah, yeah um yeah. But yeah, yeah. Hey, you guys. That's him. That's that guy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking that anywhere else other than just to land that with you because no, I was fine. quite excited to read that. Okay. Uh, but talking to other actors, uh, she was talking. Dennis Quaid is in this film. Dennis yeah. Quaid is yeah. in this film yeah. as a as a very young, lean Dennis Quaid. He's like a he's a proper young man. Yeah, I didn't yeah. recognize him initially. Actually. No, same. Um, other than I was looking out for him because I saw his name in the credits, having yeah. not been aware that he was in it until I started watching it. Yeah. So uh, this is not. Uh, so unlike Shelley Long, like Dennis Quaid has already been doing movies for it looks like about four or five years by mm, this point. Yeah. You know? So he is. So I, I, I'm not saying he is a big sort of. He's certainly not an established star or anything, but he is a kind of experienced actor. That's point. weird, isn't it? Because you kind of feel like I don't know about you, but watching this film, I imagined whilst watching it that this is a Ringo Starr vehicle. And all of the other actors around him are unknowns at this time. Yeah. And any sort of fame that we attach to them would have come after this movie. Yeah. You mentioned to me earlier before we started recording this that obviously Barbara Mack would have been in The Spy Who Loved Me before this film. She's like the main Bond girl. 1977, yes. Yeah, so in that yeah. movie. Yeah. And then in this, it's actually a small role that she has here. Yeah. Um, and Dennis Quaid... You know, the the regardless of the sort of how famous he was at the time of this film, it's a it's a relatively small role. It's like it's, I guess he's probably one of the main lead co-stars. He's definitely one of the main lead co-stars. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not a very rewarding role. No, not necessarily. I suppose he has a bit of a showpiece uh, bits where he goes off uh, and sort of accidentally wanders into an ice age. Yeah. Which was a joke I really liked, by the way. It's yeah. Like the suggestion that, that there was an ice age just sort of next door. Yes, it's, it's approaching, <laughs> yes. Know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which they can sort of come and go from oh, just I, like walking through a door. Kind uh, of yeah, thing, I, I, I did quite I like that joke. I didn't like it when they discovered him later on and he was frozen. And uh, him being frozen just appeared to be him standing motionless behind some cellophane <laughs> that they were trying to pass off as like an ice block. Pretty much, or something. Yeah. It was a really poor... Like even for this film, it's a pretty poor special effects. 
Yeah, yeah. But he, but he was, because he, he was frozen while being chased by the abominable snowman. Yes. And, and was frozen in a position of running and fear while looking yes. back at it. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, is a good yeah, it's visual funny, joke. Yeah, the idea of it being like a flash freeze of, of him in motion is <laughs> right, quite funny, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, so he... He did get the chance in that bit, I think, to sort of do, to, to sort of, you know, flex his chops a little bit, I suppose, you know. But it's, no, of course not. There's not loads. But I, I mean, I don't get the impression that, I don't know, but I don't think Dennis Quaid was well known at this point. I think no, he had no just done, done a few films. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Nice to see him crop up in this, actually. And I, I do think he's, you get the sense that he is sort of one of the better presences in the film yeah yeah well you know whereas like with barbara bach i get the impression that they are playing on the bond girl thing a bit when she is first introduced what sounds like quite a james bond ish sort of love theme oh really seems I didn't to play, that. okay uh which which sounded quite sort of roger moore era but you know yeah, that, 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 that sort of like kind of stirring whimsical strings kind of thing yeah 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 exactly So, yeah, I got the impression that that is kind of what they were doing. Uh, and I also noticed, which, I mean, by the way, this can't be a reference to a James Bond film because the actual film didn't then happen for another 20 years or so. But like she uh, she accidentally crushes Ringo's head with his with her thighs. Oh, yeah, point. like Goldeneye. Like in Goldeneye. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, but, oh, it's something on the top, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, okay, but Hansen. that is a very sort of Bond girlish trope mm. of sort of uh, the sort of sexy femme fatale like being able to do do a man some damage, but in a kind of sexual yeah, way, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. And and who's to say that Martin Campbell, uh, director of Goldeneye, didn't actually take that from Caveman? Exactly. I think yeah. we can safely assume that he did. He did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, yeah, prove us wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of the film's legacy, by the way, it's probably a good time to uh, mention Zug Zug. Yeah. Do you know about Zug Zug? Zug Zug. Yes. Zuzug in the film means sex, to have right? sex. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a whole other meaning, I think, uh, particularly online, of online gamers. Zuzug is one of the main phrases that the orcs in World of Warcraft say. Really? Yeah. And I, I, cause I'm, uh, you'll know this about me, not a gamer. No. Um, so I, I, I can't really say about in what context. I think it's to do with something working right or or to 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 perform some kind of action but they say zug zug a lot okay so it's it's taken on a life of its own this phrase right but it is directly attributable from this film oh it's not just a coincidence no no no. it's actually like it's been it's in the phrase originated with caveman and has been uh, employed in that film but so there is there are uh i I read by chance i read something about somebody mentioned zug zug coming from this film and looks it up and it's yeah there's a whole whole uh, reference library of references to it online about uh in, in relation to world of warcraft well i had no so idea if there was one one thing that the film sort of gave the rest of the world uh <laughs> it's the phrase zug zug that orcs say in an online role-playing game <laughs> but originally meant in this film to have sex <laughs> Well, it's, I it's, mean, it's, it's worth it for that. Yeah. <laughs> and like you were saying earlier, if a film achieves what it sets out to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the um, 
music earlier, I did want to um, talk about. I did find it quite interesting some of the musical choices that were made. Yeah, the, the score does play actual sort of familiar classical compositions yeah. a few times throughout the movie. I'm trying to think of what's the one that's... Um, oh, uh, so at one point in the film, uh, it plays the William Tell Overture, yep. I think. Yep. Um, but the one that interested me most was uh, when they discover fire, yep. the the score plays a sort of like a sound-alike version of uh, Strauss's... Uh, and I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this, but I think it's Thus Spake Zarathustra. I think. <laughs> I just... Messed yeah, it up. That's just a noise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah it does make Zarathustra. But it's it's the famous uh, music from two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, right? So when the the apes are bashing bones on the on the ground and they discover the monolith, uh, that famous sort of like dawn uh, is coming music, yeah. familiar to everyone. But I just found it really interesting that they the film played like a fake version of that. Like it's it's referencing directly referencing that music, but not actually playing the exact music, which I thought was odd because there's no copyright issue involved in in performing that. Well, so. no, I guess not. But it, it, yeah, because they are, they are using. I, I, I liked the way that they used. Uh, they discover a, a massive dinosaur egg at one point, and they're yeah. walking off with it, and you get Colonel Bogey playing under it. You know, yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. Old, yeah. old thing. You know, sort of. Makes you think of yes. like old military films. That's right, yeah. Where they're marching, you know, it's a it's a marching song essentially. Yeah. So the, the, yeah, there's no reason why they wouldn't have just used the same thing. So yeah, no, that, that yeah. is a bit distracting, I suppose, especially when obviously what you're trying to do is parody something. Yes. Yeah. So, you expect that to be played more directly. I guess so. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, like I'm defending this film more than you are, but like, I'm not going to say that, you know, it's <laughs> the, 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 the choices it makes are particularly nuanced ones most of the time. So yeah, yeah. if you're going to make a joke like that, I would expect it to be more on the nose. Exactly. Know? Yeah. But in general, I, I uh, the, there were bits of the score where, you know, I I was listening, I was watching, and then uh, and the the score would come up, and I thought, oh, this is, this is better than I would expect it to be. Like, you know, this score is seems to be quite deft in places, mm. you know, mm. and um and, and like sort of quite stirring. So the score was by a guy called Lalo Schifrin, right? Who also wrote, it turns out, the Mission Impossible theme. Oh, did it? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. No, I recognize the name now. Yeah, yeah. You butchered the pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> but no, of course. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. Wow, and he wrote the score for this. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so, yeah, no, the, the, the score was, it, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, I, I don't tend to pick up on the scores of films all that much. Yeah, same. You know, it, yeah. It's not something, you know, I mean, it's so, uh, 
we we're recording this a couple of weeks after the release of Oppenheimer and like when I went to see Oppenheimer at the cinema I was quite struck by the fact that the score is going on in pretty much every scene mm. you don't really get a break from it and I think after, maybe after the bomb goes off then it stops yeah it, that's interesting is it because I think that uh having watched Oppenheimer I didn't think about the score once yeah. and I and I feel like that's the kind of claim that would infuriate score enthusiasts yeah because i'm sure uh if you're really into musical score it's the kind of film that 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 plays a big part in that cinematic experience for them but it's not something that i ever really pick up on when i'm watching the film no i I don't tend to um but but i did with this and like i say i just thought it was i just thought it was well used and you know i found bits of it uh stirring and just sort of like quite cleverly placed Mm. No fair. I mean, I will say, but this the same day I watched Oppenheimer, I did watch Barbie uh, yeah. movie, and um, I did notice Dua Lipa's "Dance the Night Away," which is <laughs> which is a great song. So, right, right. so some, so almost if that song had been used in Oppenheimer, yeah, then I would have noticed it then. And who's to say that that would have been better? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the film is the poorer for, for, not, for not using that. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We talked uh, very early on at the start of this uh, about Ringo's performance. I completely forgot to mention one of the most incredible things I think about his portrayal in this film is that somehow throughout the entire movie, uh, Ringo's caveman grunts and nonsensical words still come through with a very strong Lipperpudlian accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really stands out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when he first did it, I was like, "Oh, wow, that is that is." <laughs> That is an unusual accent to have in one zillion BC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you wouldn't want it any other way, would you? Um, no, exactly. You know, if you're going to cast Ringo Starr, then that, that's kind of what you want from him. That's exactly right. And what what a what, what better sentiment to end on uh, I mean, than that? Dustin Hoffman couldn't have done it. No, <laughs> no Dudley Moore could have. <laughs> But anyway, we would love to hear from you. If anyone's listening to this right now, please tell us what you think. Did you alunder the film uh, or did you think it was caca? Please get in touch with us. We're on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode or any of our other episodes, please feel free to leave us a uh, five-star rating or a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.